Can I say something? If you must. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the world famous Tetrabrodzology podcast. <laughs> I'm Grover Krantz. <laughs> um, I'm Kevin Padian. <laughs> okay, now, so we've had a long um, summer hiatus, summer hiatus, a summer recess. Yes. Would you like to say anything about that? Uh, not really. I mean, I think we missed the, l- we were going to do it, but then of course SVPCA and Flugsoria came up, so. Yeah, so I like to tell people, and I have been telling people today that, that we've, we take a summer break, yeah. go away. <laughs> But in actual fact, we're just very, very lazy. Uh, I'm very, very busy, is the actual truth of the matter. Yes, we just had the conference um, conference season. We're both recovering from conferences. So the Terrasol meeting held at the University of Portsmouth. Flugsire, as it was called this year. <coughs> Don't really like that term, but, you know, it's a German word. Um, anything, do you want to say anything about Flugsoria meeting? Um. You know, I can't remember it now, so... Uh, you, you didn't sit through the five-hour workshop on flight biomechanics. I sure did. Oh, you did? Yeah, that was yeah. good. Yeah, was. I've got to say, I've got to say, so don't worry, this will be brief. I've got to say, you know, I enjoyed it overall, but the fact that you come away from it without thinking that there was anything in particular, anything memorable, these meetings, these specialist, like, you know, special meetings for you know, particular groups of organisms or whatever, they do often have the feel of like a committee meeting about them. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that it's like, it's kind of like a thing you have to do every now and again to sort of thrash out where we are at the moment and what people are working on. But you don't come away from it saying, oh my God, I cannot believe that whoever has got that specimen or they're working on that or this, oh, there's a real game changer. There wasn't stuff like that in it. But then no. the nature of conferences today, they're not like that anyway because I just think the whole shape of the game has changed um so yeah i mean the the one that dave unwin's talk on terrorist growth was quite interesting i heard it before yeah it's exactly this exact same talk <laughs> i haven't heard that talk <laughs> it, before i i'm pretty sure i have probably at svpca or maybe at sv i don't know one of those s meetings um yeah and then of course after fluxoria so so imagine that you going to a conference and you're giving a talk in front of your peers and uh, you know mm. takes a lot of time and effort to get it right and everything and then two days later you've got another conference at which you're giving a different talk and at which you're also you know talking in front of your peers wow so what kind of an idiot would do that sort of thing um yeah <clears throat> so i did it and uh, <laughs> oh, i don't know did i pull it off you saw both talks you sure did yeah <laughs> I sure did. So we had SVPCA, that's the Symposium on Vertebrate Paleontology and Comparative Anatomy, held at the University of Southampton, so a long way away from Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. No, in actual fact, the whole reason that these two cities are about 20 kilometers apart or something, um, they, they, they deliberately did arrange them close in time because uh, of the venues. So um, you, people could go from one thing to the other. SUPCA, yeah. it was it was huge. It was like 180 ish people, biggest ever, I think. And I thought I thought it was really good. And I went to that because I was sort of know all the organisers and was vaguely involved in the organisation. But uh, shout outs to my fr- colleagues in Southampton. Uh, I think Jess listens to this. Hi, Jess. Um, but again, highlights. 
Um, yeah. There's all there's Fallout, but, but not highlights. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the snake was the big big uh, big ticket yeah. talk, wasn't it? Really, Tetrapod Office and Plexus or whatever it's yeah. called. Um, yeah, and Nick Longrich, very good speaker. He, he did a he did a good talk. But again, you know, hey, we know about this. It's been out for for weeks. Tetrapod Office. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so to people that don't know, Tetrapod Office is a tiny snake. Off the top of my head, I think it's like 16 centimetres long, something like that. It's from the Cretaceous of Brazil. There's a whole lot of issues attached to its, um, the legality of the fact that it's out of Brazil because it was found in a German collection. But, um, but it's pretty incredible because it's like a really primitive snake. And it's, uh, as you might guess by the name Tetrapod Opus, it's got four complete limbs with like little digits and everything. And uh, uh, there's the, the fossil is preserved quite tightly curled part of it the anteriorly like near a head it's curled so it seems to have been quite flexible and maybe it was they proposed that maybe it was a um like a constrictor that maybe used its yeah use its limbs to cuddle things with so (laughs) that was cool yeah yeah so so that was a good meeting so yeah so what with those conferences i mean i've also been oh god the books i just work in my bottom off <laughs> just about finishing two books and, and I finished another one a couple of weeks ago and uh, got the textbook to go back to and um, are we doing like normal format this episode no it's can, chaos reigns this episode chaos chaos okay uh, well there is a little bit of like fu okay, slash yeah, dumbass Darren, yeah. t- tiny little bit of that there was a discussion about extinction events and stupid old Aaron said some stuff about late Triassic bolide impacts being comparable to those of the uh, Cretaceous, right? Mm-hmm. And you you thought that's probably not right, and I thought mm, I'm sure I read it somewhere. And I was like, so I came away from it thinking, where did I read it, right? Mm-hmm. And I went and checked, and I checked a book manuscript I'm working on, and I'd said it in the book manuscript. And I was like, that's interesting. Where did that come <laughs> from? And uh, I checked up on it. It's, and a, what I it's an echo chamber. It's just you. <laughs> You're reading your me. own writing and saying, I read that somewhere. Yep. It turned out that, you know, completely wrong. Completely wrong. I'm actually not sure where I got it from. Um, but if you look at the magnitude of the events, yes. As much as it pains me to say it, what you said is completely right. The end triassic ones, uh, you know, and other people said this as well. And my apologies for not mentioning their names because I can't remember who said it now. Such a long time ago. But yeah, whatever happened in the late Triassic, not comparable to the late uh, Cretaceous. Um, yeah. And there was some there was some other knock on stuff in that, but I've forgotten it now because, again, such a long time ago. There's some other FU stuff as well, but I haven't written it down. I've forgotten it. Let's do a cash for question. Uh, d- just Dinosaur Britain. Have you seen Dinosaur Britain? This two-part TV series. No, I have not seen Dinosaur Britain. I've seen memes <laughs> on Facebook about it, but I haven't actually <laughs> seen Dinosaur Britain. Yeah, I'm in episode two, and I'm, I'm okay with what happened. But there's a... Yeah, it's pretty good. Well done, Dean Lomax, and everyone else involved in it. But so. Good. Right. Okay. Right. Cash request. Yeah. Of course, yeah. there's loads of new stuff we could talk about. Loads well, we of can brand talk new- about that in between if you want. But we're doing a cash request question now. Okay. Okay, this is from John Perry from StateClearly.com. And John asks, do fossil melanosomes occur only in feathers or can they be found in fossils' hair or skin? Is it possible that melanosomes are just artifacts of fossilization? I ask because of the drama surrounding 
Sinusopteryx fuzz. I live in Corvallis, Oregon, home of John Rubin. All students Ooh. here at OSU are taught birds and not dinosaurs. Wow. <laughs> so that's sort of inform. It's more a bit of information at the end, rather. So what's what's the question? The question is melanosomes. What's the deal with them? Yeah, melanosomes. What's all that about? Thank you for the question, John. Um, the the issue that they're that students are taught birds are not dinosaurs. Um, I'm regardless of one's opinion on issues such as this. I'm never comfortable with the idea that people are taught something that's kind of like agenda driven because, you know, I talk to students, I lecture students and when there's controversial areas where I've got to put a certain opinion, my thinking as a lecturer, teacher, whatever, educator is that you should say, this is what people think and this is what other people think. And obviously you state, which is like, you know, the better supported, but you don't do it with like an agenda-driven fashion, and that's certainly agenda-driven, so that's quite a cause for concern, which is already obvious. I didn't need to say any of that. <clears throat> no. Fossil melanosomes. Okay, so far as I know, I'm not an expert on this, but I have like tried to keep up with the various toings and froings, and it's a, something that's become quite a big subject within the past like two years or so, is um, I think in theory they can be preserved in any tissue, and there are certainly structures in skin that uh, in the skin of, say, fossil mosasaurs, turtles, and ichthyosaurs that have all been identified as melanosomes and do seem to be melanosomes. So, yes, they can be in the skin. Um, and um, they're identified as melanosomes primarily on the basis of size and shape. And, of course, to, to those people who don't know what melanosomes are, they're basically like little packages that contain uh, pigments, or they contain the chemicals that we associate with pigments in the modern world, in modern animal skin and other structures. So um, there's all these things that look like melanosomes in fossil feathers, fossil skin. Uh, they're the right size and shape. They seem to be particular kinds of melanosomes that indicate colors. But is it possible that they're actually fossilized bacteria or you know, I don't know, microscopic fungi or something. Mm. Um, this is this this idea has always been there, and it's often pointed to by, funnily enough, by John Rubin and buddies, Alan Fiducia and their colleagues. These people that don't want um, that argue that birds that that, that non-bird dinosaurs aren't much to do with birds, even though they say that some of them now are birds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's actually there's actually a paper by Fiducia. I, I think it's I think it's called I might be getting confused with the Lingham Soliar one. Um there's a paper called Do Feathered Dinosaurs Exist? And it starts off by saying like, early on in the paper it says that oh, you know the whole idea of a feathered microraptor is just nonsense and this animal was clearly just a stupid scaly little dinosaur. <laughs> and then at the end of the paper it says, Now we come to the feathers of microraptor. Well look, they're just like bird feathers. Blah blah. You can't have it both. Anyway, um so, so are these structures truly melanosomes or something else? Well, there's a paper, funnily enough, which has just been published, okay, dated 27th of August this year, by Johan Lindgren and a huge raft of co-authors, published in Scientific Reports, Molecular Composition and Ultrastructure of Jurassic Paravian Feathers. And this extensive study uh, specifically set out to test whether these so-called melanosomes could be um, like lithified bacteria or something, and based on 
Oh, he says this without remembering what the whole point of the paper was. My recollection is that the the chemistry involved in these structures is absolutely distinct from bacteria and other things, and that they really, uh, whereas their chemistry really is absolutely indicative of the fact that they are melanosomes. So this seems to clinch it that these so-called ancient melanosomes, as I said, thus far identified as melanosomes on the basis of size and shape really are melanosomes we can say that for sure now so um it's basically about unambiguous chemical data associated with these structures so yeah there you go um there you go they are they are melanosomes and the shapes that we identify and i can't remember do people know this stuff off the top of their head if they're like not super specialists you know how like there's okay good right well in that case i'm gonna Okay, so my recollection is that, like, say, a long, skinny, sausage-shaped melanosome is identified on the basis of what we know about melanosomes in living animals is identified as uh, a eumelanin melanosome, so one that's indicative of, like, you know, black mm-hmm. hue in, in in the live animal, and there's more sort of squat, less elongate ones that are more indicative of pheomelanins, which are indicative of like yellows and browns and things. This is why, you know, we've now got these ideas about the coloration of certain extinct animals and dinosaurs in particular. Um, and um, yeah, these, you know, if these things really are melanosomes, as this new study demonstrates, then yes, we do have some reliable indication of some of the uh, plumage colors and skin colors in some extinct animals. So, yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of those are associated with more than one colour, aren't they? So the black one, for example, can also be um, associated with structural colours, like blues, iridescent blues, um, something like this. Yeah, that's about right. But isn't I, I, is that right, or is the complication the fact that that not all colours reflected in life? are pigment are, are yeah. caused by pigment they're caused by because structural colors is like you know the way iridescence works to, due to the microscopic anatomy of the feather vein or whatever yeah. that's that's a diff, isn't that a different issue from the pigmentation it is but so it doesn't tell you i guess what i was saying is it doesn't necessarily tell you so you find these melanosomes that are associated with black pigment doesn't tell you that that would be black in in life. It tells you that it could be, uh, it could have a structural colour on top of it. That sounds right to me. That sounds right. So, and yeah. for some reason, the other sort doesn't have structural colour. Isn't associated with structural colours. Maybe structural colours have to be yeah. black pigment or something like that. I don't know. Mm. See, that we like we do these things off the cuff, don't we? So, well, yeah, I, so I, I have time raw, to read up about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, there's, and there has also been um, now. I can't remember. Never can remember the name of the researcher who um, has given talks on this and published a little bit on it about it as well. So there's a researcher whose name I can't remember. I have been to talks she's given where she says that it's a bit suspicious that so far all of the melanosomes people have reported in uh, we're talking only here about dinosaurs, including fossil birds. Um, they're all indicative of blacks, browns, and greys. Right. Yeah. So everything the mesozoic was super dull. Okay, there's some indication of like I think a little bit of possible reddishness in animals like Anchionis. But um so there's these you know, she got a load of 
modern birds of all conceivable hues and then subjected them to like mock fossilization you know like heated them and squashed them flat and stuff and uh, or maybe just their feathers maybe not the actual birds and then the uh, fossilization caused the melanosomes to i think this is right again i haven't checked on this but the um, melanosomes became distorted such that, that those related to every conceivable color of the rainbow all looked like you, you, they all look like the ones associated with um, blacks, browns, and greys, mm. and so there's a slight cause for suspicion. Is like you know maybe these melanosomes that were associated associated with blacks, greys, and browns, maybe some of them aren't. So, in view of you know what you said a minute ago about structural colours, and in view of this, the fact that they may be distorted, in view of the fact that we're often missing um, huge sections of the pigmentation of animals so people say oh wow it's great we know what hues what colors anchionis was and there's all these reconstructions of it with blacks and grays and whites and stuff it's like don't forget those actual bits the actual melanosomes come from tiny sections of the animal's integument that we don't we don't haven't sampled the animal's entire coloration Mm. so what we've got is kind of like provisional one of those things where half an arse is better than no arse at all it's like we've got kind of like a provisional idea you know we're working on it we're adding bits of data all the time but we mustn't i'm not implying that anyone does but we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that ah, we now know what the whole animal looked like because like didn't yeah. didn't someone say that like so anchionis for example is always shown with white patches on its wings but isn't the fact that those weren't white patches those are actually areas where we don't have any data so it was suggested that they'd be left like a neutral color white and now everyone is thinking that they're white whereas they may actually not not have been white in life i think that's 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 maybe half true but it's uh, something along those lines of course this is somewhat complicated by the fact that you'd expect black white and browns grays to be by far the most common colors anyway yeah um so yeah, that's that's tricky. Plus, plus we've also we have also got oh, well, I think you've specifically addressed this actually. We've got phylogenetic reasons for thinking that many of the bright colors that people like to put on non-bird dinosaurs may not have been present because when you actually look at how uh, certain colors are distributed even within birds alone, even when they live in birds, um they don't all do the same thing. They don't all have the same kind of like particular, you know, physiological pathways in terms of how they can produce colors. Best example is carotenoids. This uh, family of pigments associated. Well, I think I think that's the right thing to say. A family of pigments, whatever these these things that mean that animals have got like bright orange feet or yellow faces or whatever. Those particular the particular metabolic pathways that allow those colors to be generated aren't present in all birds. They're not present in paleonaths. Mm. ostriches and kin uh they're only present in neo-avians so like waterfowl game birds and all the so-called land birds and if they're not present in so so they're not if they're not ubiquitous in birds if they weren't present in the bird the common ancestor of crown birds then maybe they weren't present in uh some or all non-bird dinosaur lineages yes maybe maybe not in pterosaurs maybe everything was yeah <laughs> well, and but also there's the possibility that other non-avian dinosaurs, pterosaurs, evolved their own pathways to colours. Yep. Therefore, you know the phylogen. How much does the phylogenetic bracket tell you? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, I like, I like it's, that idea sometimes. Yeah, 
Um, because, you know, some lizards have certainly bright oranges and stuff, don't they? So, well, yeah, that but lizards. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's independently arisen at least twice, right? There you go. Well, yeah. Well, unless it's right there in the beginning. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's complicated. And if but it was yes, there yeah. in the beginning, dinosaurs would have, other dinosaurs would have had it. If it wasn't there in the beginning, then you've got at least two independent origins. Therefore, it's not. Yeah. This this is one of those cases where the phylogenetic bracket actually gives us like fairly sort of boring, uh, you know, conservative results. And on the one hand, you can say, well, it's good to be, you know, we should be conservative. Um, for one thing, it kind of stops some ridiculous Daglo reconstructions of dinosaurs. Mm. But on the other on the other hand, you know, maybe this is a case where, yeah, well, you've just said it. Maybe the phylogenetic bracket is not applicable. Uh, we're applying it in kind of the wrong way. That it's dumb to think that something. You know, if you look at like living crocs, um, are you know one of our brackets for extant for, for for fossil archosaurs, and and you know the general thinking is oh they're but they're boring and grey and they don't do all this kind of stuff. But yeah, but they're like really specialised. Living crocs are really specialised. They're not at all indicative of like, the whole of their lineage. They're not as conservative as we think they are anyway. I mean, there are you know crocs with like bright yellow on bits of their bodies and stuff. Cuban crocs, best example. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll stop there. Cause yeah, yeah, I'm- in many ways, I think you've got to combine the um, phylogenetic bracket, what we know about the chemistry involved, and what we know about uh, the coloration of animals in different environments. But unfortunately, I don't think that that's tremendously well known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't really yeah. know the rules about that. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, this whole subject, this is one of those things where... You could almost say, if you were some kind of like sciencey, cynicky person, that we're all trying to run before we can walk. This is something that we've only this whole melanocyte, this whole field. First of all, it's something that most of us don't really understand. You know, I can't pretend to be an expert on this. Mm. Neither, well, neither can you really. No, um, absolutely not. And this is something that we've only just kind of really, you know, started getting to grips with, learned about, and discovered within the past five years or so, and. Um, so yeah. However, yeah, I, I do think we've hopefully. Do you think we've answered um, uh, John's? Uh, yeah, I think we've answered John's question. I think so, to the best of our ability, anyway. To the best of our meager abilities, and good luck. Keep fighting the fight, John. And um, <laughs> birds are not dinosaurs. The band movement, such a fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> let's move on. Let's do another cash question then, huh? Uh, should we talk briefly about Tetsuocon now? We can talk about it now and then mention it at the end because we've got to plug okay. it. Come on! Yep. All right. uh, so there's an event called the Tetrabod Zoology Convention, or as we like to call it, Tetsuocon. Uh, we've had one so far held last year, and uh, it was such a success, and everyone loved it so much that we're having another one this year. It's uh, being held again at the London Wetland Centre on Saturday, November the fourteenth. London Wetland Centre. November the 14th, Tetsuocon. Uh, if you use your favourite internet search engine, do Tetrabod's Orgy Convention or tetsu.com forward slash convention. Yeah. You go and check out the web's web page and please consider booking. We've also, uh, tickets for the day cost uh, £40. We've got loads of merchandise and stuff that'll be for sale this year and we've already got a full schedule, lo- list of speakers and um, uh what do you call people that aren't speakers but are there uh, like you know uh, attend you know, people that are involved in the workshops and stuff like that 
That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Celebrity appearances. Celebrity appearances. We've got a whole list of people, and John's done some brilliant little cartoons of people, which I hope, I think they all like. And um, <clears throat> yeah, we hope to see you there. Yeah. And to, to those outside of the UK, sorry, it's based in London, but you know what are you going to do? Yeah, and well, people <laughs> outside, I, I am considering doing something like um, periscoping it. Do you know that app called Periscope? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have any idea, do you? It's for um, it's for broadcasting live events. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm going to look into that, and I'll let people know how that what my lookings into arrive at. <laughs> All these okay. So we quite regularly get people saying, "Oh, can you like live stream it or you know something?" And those ideas are just a noble, and I kind of wish we could do them. On the other hand, <laughs> there is the fact that, sadly, sadly, this isn't a charity, <laughs> and uh, um, I don't know how to how to balance the two. It's like you can't. I, I hope people can understand that we can't just give away this stuff for free. We literally can't. Literally can't. If you knew how much it costs to venue costs and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, I was going to say, oh, the if I was going to periscope it, it would be to people who had paid. Yeah, not the full admission price, obviously, but yeah, yeah. I think people need to know Some that sort of nominal so. amount. Exactly, it has to be yeah. a sort of pay per view type thing. So that that's that's against my general principles and maybe yours as well. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, it's your general <laughs> principle, <laughs> not making any money. Yeah. I've never, I'm not involved in making money. I believe in giving everything away for free, and it's what's made me the person I am today. But but, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. So um, nevertheless, nevertheless, um, we 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 really we really would like Tezucon to become like a multi-day event. Maybe to start with a two-day event. We've certainly got more than enough material. I mean, we 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 have turned away speakers for this one. So. Um, the problem, as I said, is uh, at the moment costings. So, uh, but we'll get there. This is only the second one ever, yeah. and uh, already tickets are selling like proverbial cakes that are hot. So, uh, yeah, I'll draw a graph of how of ticket sales over time. Yeah. Time is on the x-axis. <laughs> <laughs> this is great podcasting. <laughs> okay. We're going to do a cash request. That's very nice. Yeah, it's sort of semi-exponential there. At that rate, we'll have sold six million tickets in the next week. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Pounds, pounds, pounds. Okay. Now then. Richer than astronauts. Right. Richer. As rich as astronauts. Solid gold house. Oh, yeah, that was one of the highlights of SUPCA. Mark Witten's talk on paleo art. Yes, he even true. got the term "solid gold house" solid in there. Gold house. <laughs> that's a good talk. Okay, cash question. Yes, Joseph Crawley. Nope, sorry, Crawley. Sorry, Joseph. Seeing as modern archosaurs and most likely most extinct ones as well are exclusively egg layers, is there any evidence indicating how Metriorhynchid crocodilomorphs reproduced? Were they so adapted to the marine environment that they indif- independently evolved live birth, or would they have gone up beaches to lay their eggs like sea turtles do today? Do you want to say anything smart on this? I, I have absolutely no idea. Well, then, there is actually a Tetsu article on 
um, Mutuaring Kids that specifically kind of kind of mentions this. So what we've been saying for years, in lieu of comments about possible viviparity, possible live birth in certain non in certain dinosaurs, you know, it's been suggested every now and again sauropods might have given birth to live babies and stuff, is. The phylogenetic bracket, everything you know about archosaur, diversity and physiology and stuff indicates that they have to lay eggs. All archosaurs we know lay eggs. And we think at the moment that the, the whole way baby archosaurs develop is contingent on them having an eggshell. That, you know, babies drive their calcium from the eggshell as they grow and blah, 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 blah. Um, <clears throat> all this kind of stuff. These sort of theoretical things. Um, but this harks back to what I just said a minute ago about weaknesses with the phylogenetic bracket argument. It's like, we're basing it on living animals. Living crocs and living birds are both very specialised, and what they do is not necessarily reflective of what was present in ancient fossil archosaurs. I mean, you know, that's kind of supported by the fact that we now think that uh, pterosaur eggs, for example, as the eggshell is incredibly thin, and the eggs may well have been... Um, Pliable, the eggshell yeah. may have been pliable, which is really quite different from what's present in crocs and birds. Croc, croc eggs are. Um, uh, there's actually like a little bit of slack on this in the literature, but they do seem to be hard shelled like bird eggs. They, um, so if you've got like a marine group of uh, extinct archosaurs, um, yeah, what's the deal there? Surely they're doing the same egg laying thing uh, as, as living archosaurs. But then. Uh, Meteorinkids got really large sizes of, I think we're talking about like seven meters long, maybe even bigger. That these things are huge. And are they coming up beaches to dig holes and lay eggs on land? Well, maybe. Seems a bit of a stretch. They are incredibly, you know, strongly adapted for life in water. Could they have evolved with a parity? So no direct evidence on this at all yet. Nothing. Nothing in the way of, you know, nothing like eggs, eggshells, babies preserved inside mothers. Uh, in fact, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no young juveniles of these animals at all. So we are, you know, using indirect, you know, indirect, sort of specula- speculating. Yeah. But what's really interesting about Mitchell Kids, and I've learned all this from Mark Young, who's uh, the main guy working on these animals, is... Um, Mitrinkids do have peculiarly broad pelvis. So the, the sacrum is very strange. The sacrum is quite broad. I'm trying to remember diagrams he showed me. But they, they basically showed quite a broad pelvis. The whole orientation of the pelvis was weird. And it really looked from the pelvis as if, theoretically, there would indeed be space for something bigger than an egg. Something, something like, you know, a reasonably... I mean, the thing is to give birth to life babies. If you're an archosaur, you don't need to give birth to an, an adult. So, so you don't need to give birth to a you don't need <laughs> an to give adult. Birth, no, yeah, really God's sake. Just ed- edit that out. You make me sound like an idiot. It doesn't. You don't no. need to be giving birth to a baby that's like a quarter the size of the mother. It yeah. can be a thing that's like a tenth the size, a twentieth the size of the mother. So you know, an animal eight meters long can be giving birth to a baby that's like fifty centimeters or something smaller than that. Yeah, and there's certainly space in the pelvis. There's certainly space from the inferred oviduct, oviducts, or the birth canal, whatever. There's certainly size. There's certainly the indication that there's there's that kind of possibility. So, so, so if we can sum this up, phylogenetic, phylogenetic bracket says no, but maybe ultra unreliable. And phylogenetic bracket can be violated by novelty. 
And the last time I said that, Matt Waddell laughed at me because it sounded quite rude. But yeah. the phylogenetic bracket can be violated by novelty. Indeed, it has to be. There's a thing called evolution. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and um, no, but no direct evidence whatsoever. But indirect evidence from pelvis anatomy that it's plausible, and that's where it, we're at. That's where it ends. And I guess and my, the pelvic anatomy is ex- explained by that and not explained by something else. So it's sort of a it is a hypothesis that explains some observations. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. You don't expect these animals to have a particularly broad pelvis. Yeah. Thing they don't. They don't have like a. Uh, uh, however, I think we I think we might be limited in terms of what we understand about their, the cross-sectional shape of their bodies. Mm-hmm. But you sort of expect them as um, 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 uh, swimmers that use axial undulatory locomotion. You expect them to be kind of like, uh, well, sort of vaguely, uh, I don't know, sort cylindrical. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of cylindrical, sort of tending towards a teardrop kind of shape. So you don't expect them to be like, like wide and shallow, mm. or especially narrow and deep. Yeah, you expect them to be like subrounded in cross section. But I don't know. I, I, the, the, yeah, that's that's like a whole yeah. another thing. That's yeah. <clears throat> So let's not go down that complicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My brain. <laughs> I think that's question answered then. I think that's bish bash bosh. Bish back, isn't it? bash bosh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. That's a yes, good sporting metaphor, metaphor for you there. Sports. I'm all yeah. of, all about the sports. Yeah, so, um, yes. Uh, but but if you are interested, you go and check out Tetsu article. It's got some witty title like... Ah, sorry. Let's find and see what Google says. (laughs) Darren Googled his own jokes. (laughs) It's called Awesome Seagoing Crocodiliforms of the Mesozoic. But of course, since I wrote that article, it's looking pretty likely that Meetrinkids and other Thalatosuchians are not crocodiliforms at all. They are crocodilomorphs. They're not crocodile forms. They seem to have evolved from Sphenosuchian grade crocodilomorphs. And there's now at least three independent data sets that have all got the same result, which is very intriguing. Okay, then. Yep. Right. Do you want to do another cash question or do you have another interspersing uh, sort of topic? We can, uh, I, I did, there's a whole bunch of like, you know, new papers and things I want to talk about. Um, th- uh, none of which I can remember right now. There's a new, a new fossil hominin was published today though. Um, we're talking on, it's the 10th of September and this new fossil hominin is called Homo naledi. And, uh, the, funny, the first time I've ever seen a fossil announced on Twitter before I've seen it anywhere else. But um, The paper is open access. I've skimmed it. I've literally skimmed the paper and seen, oh, it's a fossil hominin. It's from South Africa and it's from a cave, uh, deep discovered deep within a cave shelter, uh, a chamber deep within a cave complex. 
and they are implying or possibly even saying, bear in mind, I haven't read the paper, they're saying that, that it was put there, the, this carcass, this individual was put there deliberately, um, so thereby implying like sophisticated ideas about, you know, burial and, uh, well, you know, some need to preserve or, or, or keep safe the remains of your family member or tribe member or whatever. So, um, yeah, yeah. And there's some nice uh, reconstructions. It looks like they've actually got quite a lot of material of this animal. Uh, Lee Berger's the first, the first author who um, uh, I know of his research because he um, he's the one of the people who's been saying for years that the town child, this famous Australopithecine found in the 1920s, that that was killed by an eagle, which is uh, something I've written about a couple of times. May or may, may not be correct, but it's an interesting idea. An eagle killed the town child. One of the one of the first. One of the first fossil hominins to be discovered. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cash for question? Yes. This is from Irene Dels. Irene Dels rhymes with Dels. Long time cash for questioner. <laughs> amphibians, exclamation mark. Can yeah. you please tell us about the evolution of list amphibians and how, how they differ from the larger group of amphibians? Okay. Um, so, uh, so, so the term amphibians is a real pain because, okay, when we use it today, we know what we mean. We mean salamanders and frogs and toads and Sicilians. But when we use amphibians in the like sense of deep time fossil record, there's this vast assemblage of tens of lineages of tetrapods, which are all called amphibians in the with quotes sense and uh, very many of which have got very little to do with the modern ones so to get ra- and, and some of which are not closely related to the living ones at all some of them are actually more closely related to amniotes like for example didactomorphs and semoromorphs probably maybe competing phylogenies so one way around this has been let's call the living ones lysamphibians and Irene does that in her question tell us about the evolution of lysamphibians um and that like caught on for a while in the phylogenetic and paleontological literature. But who cares about phylogenetics and fossils? Because the majority of people who work on animals are biologists who don't give a crap about fossils. And they don't use lysamphibians. They use amphibians for the living ones. So <laughs> within recent years, there's kind of been a shift back to the idea that actually maybe this just use the term amphibians for the living ones. The fossil ones, eh, eh who cares? You know, <laughs> that's not sorted out. So... So there is this kind of basic terminological problem that's not resolved. And, um, uh, yeah. I thought the crown group people had won out, that all these terms were now crown group terms and you had to, for all the crazy fossil things, you had to think of something else. I wouldn't say they've won out in terms of, you know, what's what happens in general literature, but... Um, uh, you do more frequently see people use amphibians for, like, the living ones. Sorry, I and don't mean just in amphibians. I mean many things. I think <clears> the crown group idea was starting to gain ascendancy. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd say that's true. Yeah, I think that's. I'd say that's true. So, uh, anyway, this is all stupid preamble that I shouldn't even have embarked on. So, um, so <laughs> yeah. all those things, all those fossil things that used to be called amphibians, I don't like calling them amphibians. So, I, in the textbook I'm working on, I and I also wanted to go for the shortest name possible to save space. I've called them anamniates, which is also used for them, anamniates. So non-amniate tetrapods. So all the things used to be called amphibians, anamniates. So uh, then, of course, some people also call them 
stem tetrapods. But then some of them are in the crown. Some of them are in the tetrapod crown. <sighs> anyway, okay. So living amphibians, or less amphibians, if you like, um, have, there's like two competing ideas as to you know, which fossil groups they might be most closely related to. One idea is that they are miniaturized descendants of temnospondyls. So temnospondyls, this huge group of anamniotes that were present from like the Carboniferous until the Cretaceous, they were long thought to have died. Long thought to have had the, like, their heyday in the sort of Triassic, the Permian and Triassic, and then it was discovered uh, during the late twentieth century that sort of a couple of lineages had persisted into the Jurassic and then into the early Cretaceous. Temnospondyls are enormously diverse, as you'll remember from that quick. What was it? Thirty second thing I did at the. Uh, the, mm-hmm. yep. in, the, in the restaurant um, <laughs> there, are, there are like salamander like ones that are only sort of 40 centimetres long and then there are sort of like giant fat headed sort of uber predatory ones that are as like over 5 metres long giant skulking freshwater or even brackish water predators there are like long long headed sort of swimming temnospondyls there's like flat bodied kind of bottom dwelling ones there's and there's and there's also a large number of terrestrial ones with strong adaptations for terrestrial environments and in these it's these terrestrial ones they're called dysrophoids this is the group that includes cacops platyhystrix those kinds of temnospondyls they have got a number of features of the skull in particular which um particularly the like ear region brain case which are really similar to um features seen in less amphibian in modern amphibians and uh, so quite a few workers have proposed that miniaturized dysorophoids adapted for like life in fairly terrestrial environments obviously still amphibious uh, they are the direct descendants of crown amphibians and that that must have happened in the uh, triassic and then in the triassic you've got like early frogs or members of the frog lineage like Tridobotrachus from Madagascar and then in the early Jurassic you've got like the first salamanders like Caroras from Siberia and uh, in, in the Jurassic you've got evidence for Sicilians as well so <clears throat> there's another group the Albinopotontids let's not worry about those um, so so yeah so this idea of like modern amphibians descending from dwarfed um, dysorophoid temnospondyls is quite popular among the research community. Uh, it's received a boost within well, the last 10 years or so by an animal called Gerobotrachus, which is a dysorophoid, but a really small one. Like only, I think it's only like 20 or 30 centimetres long. And uh, that looks like a nice kind of uh, intermediate, in quotes, between um, other dysorophoids and uh, early amphibians. Okay, so that's the... Um, Temnospondyl hypothesis for modern amphibian origins. I, I would say that's the majority opinion. The, the alternative opinion is that list amphibians instead, modern amphibians. <sighs> uh, oh, okay. Gerobotrachus is about 11 centimeters long, so less than, somewhat less than what I've said. There's another group of anamniotes called lepospondyls. And this is uh, a group uh, mostly associated with the Carboniferous and Permian. And it's supposed to include microsaurs, which are kind of like, all these groups are really diverse. They're really hard to kind of summarize. 
Microsaurs are sort of like salamandry type things, but there's long bodied swimming ones and there's like blunt headed, like probably fossorial ones and various other kinds as well. And they're all pretty small. They're all like less than 30 centimeters long. Microsaurs, then there's Nectridians, which are sort of like salamandry type things, some of which are very long tails. Diplocolus is, a, is a, the, the boomerang headed thing. That's a famous Nectridian. And there's a couple of other groups as well. Those things are generally grouped together as Lepospondyls. And it has been proposed that living amphibians descend from some within the lepospondyl complex, perhaps from microsaurs. Microsaurs in particular, as long-bodied, sometimes burrowing anamniates, have some similarities with Sicilians and albinopotontids. So some researchers have suggested that albies, albinopotontids, and, which are extinct, but they died at relatively recently, the Pliocene, suggested that those and Sicilians descended from some lepospondyls, while anurans, so frogs and toes and kin, and um, uh, salamander stuff, they descend from other lepospondyls. But then this becomes even messier because the different le- le- lepospondyls are almost definitely not a clade. The different lepospondyl lineages probably belong to all different parts of the oh. tetrapodidogram. So, so Big it's... Mess. It's it's quite a mess, and there are there really are strongly conflicting uh, topologies. If you look at the work of like Jason Anderson versus our good buddy David Marjanovic and Michelle Laurent and other people that work on this, yeah, they've got and it's not minor things that are tolerable. Like you know, like you know, you know, you saw my talk about Bowel or Bondock, that theropod. Yeah. Is it a dromaeosaur, dromaeosaur, or is it a bird? In the big picture of things. Who cares? Because that's like two or three nodes. That's nothing. Yeah. Whereas the debates as regards the positions of, say, the lepospondyl lineages and the position of temnospondyls relative to other tetrapods, they are a big deal. They literally sh- they, they make a difference as to whether these things are crown tetrapods, closely living amphibians, or whether they're like way, way, way along the stem and like, you know, must have diverged close to the start of the Carboniferous or something. There's, um, there are strongly conflicting views on this. Um, and this is a very active field at the moment. Um, probably one of the most kind of uh, active and dynamic places within the tetrapod tree in terms of shapes of phylogenies and the work people are doing. You think of other groups, you know, we talk about dinosaurs a lot, this tree for dinosaurs. It's becoming true for birds. It's becoming true for placental mammals. There are still areas of controversy and uncertainty there are still branches hopping around, but generally the backbone of the tree is pretty stable and yeah. it's pretty consistent from study to study. That's not the case with anamniates. These animals are still, you've got, like, aestopods. Aestopods, these, like, long-bodied, almost snake-like, li- completely limbless anamniates of the Carboniferous. Uh, and they are regarded as close to or part of Lepospondyls by some workers, close to Nectridians, the group that includes Diplocolus. That's kind of like I think that's kind of like the um, the you know the general view at the moment. Whereas there's new data, new studies saying that nah, they actually are all the way down the down. Shouldn't talk of up and down in trees, or should you? Um, they're like way way down. Maybe it's higher or lower. You shouldn't use. Yeah, okay. <laughs> better or worse? <laughs> yeah. They're, They're way the, worse. Way, They're in the inferior part of the tree, <laughs> the less evolved part. <laughs> the less evolved part. The less evolved sister taxon, which is lower down the tree. <laughs> it's more, way, way more basal. Way, way basal. Basal, basal, basal. 
by the way, for people who don't know, these are all things you shouldn't say. So these things are way basal, <laughs> way down in the tree, um, at, at like the befeated level or something. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, they really suck then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aestopods may be befeated grade anamniote stem tetrapods. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, does that go anywhere close to answering? <laughs> I, mean, I think that's all we can take for now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> can you tell us about the evolution of this amphibians and how they differ from large groups of amphibians? Yeah. Well, another thing, I'll say one more thing on this, which is that the extant amphibians, the Lys amphibians, are, as we know, mostly, you know, amphibious. <laughs> They're mostly smooth-skinned with a biphasic life strategy, a distinct larval phase, and not all of them by any means, because they are, in reproductive terms, the most diverse tetrapods ever in the history of tetrapods. But as a generalization, they rely on, you know, water to lay their jelly-covered eggs. And, um, yeah, uh, and, we, and because of that, because of these, these traits, okay, smooth-skinnedness, amphibiousnessness, uh, biphasic life history, distinct larval phase, and vulnerable eggs that need to be laid in water. Because of those, that was, I think, five things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just the way I counted. Why did I count it like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because of those things, people have tended to interpret an amniotes, fossil amphibians, quotes, oh. air quotes. Yeah, They've in, tended to interpret fossil amphibians as the same thing. Smooth-skinned, dependent on water for laying their eggs, biphasic life strategy, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, now we've got some indication that some of those things are sometimes true in some of the fossil lineages. For example, we do have uh, larval temnospondyls that are of some temnospondyl lineages. But as a generalization, it's probably completely incorrect to apply it as a generalization. And these things, smooth skinnedness, blah, 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 larval phase, those things are probably, you know, almost new things, special things that have evolved in less amphibians and weren't present in long fossil ones. So like, in long extinct ones, you know, because like there are extinct anamniotes that are, you know, they've got like a, a scaly, Imper- well, relatively impermeable um, integument. Some of them are like, marine. Some of them are strongly terrestrial. They're out in the sea all the time. So on the land, even all the time. And um, this whole idea that that um, you can link um, that the reproductive history of tetrapods is is trong- strongly tied to water. That the early tetrapods needed to lay their eggs in water and stuff is quite probably. I don't want to say incorrect, but it's it's questionable. It's dubious. It's like, you know, we don't we shouldn't assume too much based on the physiology and life history and biology of a very specialized living group. <clears throat> yeah. It sort of goes with this notion that there's sort of this scale, right? It's the old scale thinking. You start with amphibians who have the traits of the earlier animals, then you met reptiles and then mammals. Whereas actually obviously amphibians Modern amphibians have been evolving for as long as anything else, and therefore we wouldn't really. There's no reason to think there's anything preserved like that. No, they seem to be super specialised. What they do is not indicative of what was. Uh, yeah, I've been meaning to write about this. I mean, I'm not the only person to have you know have thoughts on this. There's a there's a couple of papers by a guy called Lucas Panzerin, I think. No, that's completely wrong. He works on dinosaurs. Skulan. Okay, I'm going to go with the name Skulan. 
there's a, and he's published papers. He, I think, it's a he, saying that um, yeah, this whole model, this whole model that we've got for like the origin of tetrapods and it being linked to. Uh, I'll stop there because uh, you don't remember it well enough. I don't remember it well enough to. I'm going. I'm going to say things that are definitely wrong, yeah. and I'm also going off at a tangent. I don't need to say this stuff. So. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, again, sorry, big rambling mess, a lot of technical terms there, but I hope that's kind of interesting and useful, Irene. And um, if somebody, suppose somebody were interested in learning more about this batter, amphibians, exclamation mark, and about the evolution <laughs> of the living ones from the fossil ones, um, there's a book by uh, Robert Carroll. Is it called Rise of the Amphibians? Uh, yeah, I think so. In a strange quirk of fate, this is a volume that John owns and I don't. Although, actually, I do own a PDF, but I don't yeah. have the... Um... The Rise of Amphibians, and I'm going to drop it on the table so you can all hear it. Yeah. S- slappy. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh! <laughs> wow! What a mighty tome. <laughs> Let's see how it matches up to... <laughs> Baron Hooverman's is on the track of unknown animals. Slappy. Ah. <laughs> what did you do? Drop it on the mic? <laughs> no. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a. I mean, I would recommend this book if you if you can find it for a price that you can afford. It's especially artists. It's got so many uh, skeletal things in it, and yeah, it's, it's a great book in that respect. Yes. So, so now there's. Robert Carroll, with all due respect, is quite kind of old school in respect to his views on these animals. Um, So what he says doesn't really reflect kind of, I don't know, some of the the more interesting stuff that's happening among, um, well, some of the newer published stuff. That sounds very rude, but I kind of think it's true. Uh, but, But no one else has produced a book of that magnitude and scope. And, uh, obviously I've got all this stuff in the textbook I'm working on. (laughs) Uh, When that's done in 2040, Will. Oh, I'm going to get it it finished this year. Uh uh I am. I've got two books to get out of the way, a dinosaur book and a cryptozoology book, and once they're done... Right, so you've just got to finish two other books and then you... (laughs) But they're pretty much done. They're they're like... the, the, The dinosaur book is going to... Not print, but it's the, they, they've bundled up the um, you know the, the page proofs on the seventeenth of this month, and the cryptozoology one is the de- the extended deadline is the end of this month. Didn't I just say that the end of this month? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's got to be finished by by October. So um, they're done. Yeah. Hey, you're mm-hmm. doing the art for that. Don't forget. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 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 Let's do another cash question. Yes. Yes. Okay, this one's easy. Alexander Rise. Is a sperm whale a large dolphin? No. Next question. (laughs) Sperm whale, by which Alexander means Physeta macrocephalus, formerly Physeta catadon, depending on how old you are and what literature you use, um, 
Sperm whales are, okay, so there's the big sperm whale, which we generally just call the sperm whale. There, ha- there was an attempt a while back to get it renamed the great sperm whale or the giant sperm whale, but that didn't happen. It's one of th- probably three extant sperm whale species. The other two are Kogia breviceps and Kogia simus, the dwarf and pygmy sperm whales. Then there's a whole bunch of fossil sperm whales. There's a lot of them. And um, they range in, a lot of them are kind of like sort of orca-ish. They're sort of like, you know... Nowhere near as they're sort of intermediate in size between Kogia, the dwarf and pygmy sperm whales, and the big sperm whale, Physeta. We're talking about you know lengths of say five to ten meters. There are some real big ones like Livyatan, which was originally published as Leviathan, stupid name because preoccupied. Livyatan, a giant predatory sperm whale, uh, which big. I, I mean, I don't know how big. I would guess like fifteen meters long. It's a huge macro predator uh, and basically there's a whole bunch of fossil sperm whales um, and where do sperm whales fit within the whale family tree well they're definitely odontocetes part of this the so-called so-called toothed whales the group that does of course include dolphins but in addition to dolphins it includes the several river dolphin lineages which aren't dolphins in the true sense there's the porpoises the narwhal and beluga the um, uh, beaked whales the ziphiids um, and within this, if I were to draw like a cladogram, uh, dolphins and which includes pilot whales and killer whales and, and, and things and porpoises and, um, monodontids. So that's belugas and narwhals. They form a clade, which is often been called delphinoidea or delphinida. And that is like the dolphin clade. Sperm whales and beaked whales are definitely outside of that clade. They lack a whole bunch of, uh, you know, distinctive features of vertebrae and ear bones and skull bones and stuff that are present in delphinoids. But the question then is, do sperm whales form the sister group to ziphiids, beaked whales, or are these two distinct lineages? And I don't know what the current thinking is on that because molecular and morphological um, hypotheses have posited both possibilities. Some studies support the idea that beaked whales and sperm whales are each other's closest relatives and others don't. But whatever, let's say that's unresolved. Okay, here's a cladogram for John. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, how else can I... Can I look? Right, see that cladogram yeah, yep. there? Yeah, okay, so, so delphinoids... Uh, yeah. Well, can you see the letters? What does it, what does it say? Mm, it says M is monodontid, so that's uh-huh. belugas and uh, narwhals. P is porpoises, and D is dolphins, including you know proper dolphins and killer whales and stuff. Yeah. And that clade there is delphinoidea. Uh-huh. Then uh, PH, that's sperm whales, <laughs> for physeteroidea, and ZI is ziphiids, so beaked whales. Okay. And okay, so you see, and they fall polytomy. <laughs> people who know what that is. Well, that's how I've In shown your it. That's, that's how I've shown it because I can't remember what the yeah. I think that's yeah. about right. So, the sperm whale lineage and the beaked whale lineage is outside the clade that includes monodontids, porpoises, and dolphins. So, uh, the term whale is a pretty like flexible one. Hmm. If a dolphin becomes really big, we call it a whale. As for example, pilot sperm whale, false killer whale, so on. But um, you wouldn't call a small sperm whale a dolphin. That's not right. So, uh, so yeah, sperm whales are not yeah, dolphins. Although in our modern uh, clade-based speak, that's kind of wrong, isn't it? They're all whales. 
Yeah, they're all whales. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. not what we're saying. We're saying the other way around. Is it right to call... It's okay to call any of these things whales. Yeah, all dolphins are whales. Yeah, but it's not right to call... Yeah, yeah fair enough. A whale a dolphin. Any whale a dolphin. It's only... Only dolphins are dolphins. Only <laughs> dolphins are dolphins. <laughs> oh, I didn't show the river dolphin lineages on that. On the on the cladogram that no on one the can, cladogram. That but no one can they, see. They'd be around there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're of course being various controversies as to whether the three or four river dolphin lineages are each other's closest relatives, or whether some of them are closer to dolphinoids than others. Yeah. Uh, but but they're still not part of the. Um, uh, yeah, they're not part of the sperm whale or B12 lineages, so we don't need to worry about that. So, And we've got fossils of, of all these things going back to like certainly the uh, mid-Oligocene, early-Oligocene. Um, there's a whole bunch of like stemodontocetes that don't belong to any of the extant lineages. Uh, most, most famously squalodonts, so-called shark-toothed dolphins, which uh, aren't dolphins, <laughs> but might be... Might be might include some of the river dolphin lineages, in particular the uh, Platanista, the uh, Ganges uh, Susu river dolphin. So, mm. yeah. So, so does that does that? I think that covers it, doesn't it? Yeah. The answer is no. Um, <laughs> but uh, just a quick follow up, which I've forgotten. So keep talking while I try and remember it. Oh, uh, do modern do modern the people who work on whales and dolphins and these sorts of things use phylogenetic definitions uh you know that's a real interesting thing because mostly they don't but that's not just because they're silly if you look at any community of researchers as soon as you get away from uh paleontology well as soon as you get well no not just paleontology there's certain groups of organisms where like you just can't find phylogenetic definitions at all because people just haven't really done that they're still using a um a kind of more classic kind of typological concepts of what these groups are. I, I have looked into this quite a bit. For example, snakes. There's all these snake family names. And it's like, what specifically do you mean by that, by that, that group name? There's, because there's, I'm talking here about like higher clades, you know, clades that include whole rafts of families and other taxa. Alathinophidia and uh, Macrostomata and stuff. What specifically are these groups supposed to include? And there isn't often there often isn't a specific definition. You can say, oh, yeah, it definitely includes this taxon and that taxon and all descendants of the common ancestor, a node-based or branch-based definition. Um, in the cetacean literature, there are uh, definitions for some of these groups, but not for all of them. And um, I think uh, the last time I remember looking into it, there was still the idea that some of these group names... Uh, again, we're talking about like higher clades, including lots of you know constituent taxa and family levels and stuff, family level groups. Um, it's still kind of kind of depends on who you follow and what your general concept or what your feel of that group is. So the, the group names that I've just I've just mentioned, I mentioned Delphinida, Delphinoidia, Odontocetes, Physeteroidia, Ziphidae, all those kind of those kind of groups. There aren't, I don't think, again, on slightly dodgy ground here, I can't remember for, for, for totes, for, for definites, but um, there's, yeah, there's kind of like vague concepts of what they are. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean it's those kind of dolphin-y type things. 
So then, you know, when it comes to a specific taxon, is this inside or outside of that clade? Eh, take it or leave it. I don't know. What, yeah. what are we doing today? It's like, yeah. So, um, but just having mentioned sperm whales, sperm whales are awesome. I, I just think they're brilliant. And there's, there's uh, the, the big one. Let's, let's ignore Kogia. If you're interested in Kogia, go and find the Tetsu articles on Kogia. I've written several times about it and how crazy weird it is and how scary it looks. Um, but um, Physeta, I mean, just the whole list, whole list of crazy things about this animal. It's just absurd. Um, I mean, an animal where the head is like, you know, 25% of the body length. There's this giant block-shaped spermaceti organ inside, making up the bulk of the head, surrounded by this like fibrous husk, this thing called the, the junk. Then there are these two, two completely different nasal passages, one of which is just like this long straight passage that goes from the, uh, the sort of the, the external nostrils on the skull in a straight line up to the the front left hand side of the head, which is where the S shaped blow single S shaped blowhole is. The other nasal passage goes in like a large arc around the spermaceti organ. There's this whole idea that they snort water in to control the control the 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 um, uh, buoyancy of the how how warm the spermaceti organ is and whether that controls it, uh, which is probably nonsense, but it's a really interesting idea. But the better idea is that the spermaceti organ is not a buoyancy aid, it's a battering ram, which is how they can like smash into a ship and sink it, which they have done. And uh, there's this weird corrugated kind of like droid slug-like skin texture they've got, the uh, interesting social system they have, these like, ah, uh, yeah, they're, they're just, they're just, they're great. They're pretty weird. Yeah. They are ah, sperm whales. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know why they're called sperm whales? Because of the spermacetes, like exactly, it was yeah. thought to be seminal fluid. It was yeah. actually thought they kept a, a lot of it <laughs> in the head because when it's when it's warmed, it turns to like an oil. Ah, uh, oh, sailors, shows you what their <laughs> mind is. Semen on the brain. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you ever see a cartoon, changing the subject entirely. If you ever see a cartoon of a sperm whale spouting at the water surface and they show the spout coming from like uh how do i describe this bit of the whale here <laughs> that bit there if they show it coming from like the near neck? the back yeah the necky region or or like the back of the head yeah completely wrong because the nostril is actually right there at the front yeah. so you know you can recognize the different types of whales based on the shapes of their blows on their <laughs> the exhalation so in sperm whales, left-hand side <laughs> comes out front, goes forwards. Because uh-huh. so they, they do this thing at the surface called logging, where they just look like sort of basking. Well, they're basking in the sun, but they look like logs. And, yeah. and they dive, this is kind of U-shaped dive uh-huh. uh, pattern, and dive down to... U-shaped dive. Yeah. Well, there's a turn-off for the books. What other shape would a dive what? be? Well, you, a vertical ascent and descent. You've got a turn... Well, some animals come back up pretty much where they where they went down. So it doesn't have to be U-shaped. Well, it's just a skinny U, isn't it? They're <laughs> <laughs> not going to get in exactly the same spot. You could dive in a W-shaped pattern. <laughs> I suppose so, but why would you do you it? Well, because some... And that's because just two U's. Some animals... Within the name super, of the letter, Darren, W. Some, some animals are... <laughs> Double V. <laughs> Some animals are particularly good at descending and ascending vertically rather than at an incline. And Do you mean they, they dive in a V-shaped pattern? 
No, you, because, <laughs> because it's steep-sided and steep descent. So it's vertical. Steep descent. On... Vertical descent. Go along to the bottom. Yeah. Move around a little bit, doing whatever you're doing. Yeah. Eat old boots and squids and stuff, and then straight up. Yeah. I just can't imagine what else they could be doing. They could do a long, shallow trajectory. Oh, a long, shallow trajectory. That, which wouldn't be a U-shaped dive, because that's not a U. <laughs> that's, that's a V. A v. Yeah. That's a V, and a lot of animals dive like that. Okay. Don't just go down and go up, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they've got to get quite deep, don't they? Yeah, crazy deep, although not the deepest divers ever. We've covered this on a previous episode of the podcast. The deepest, deepest diver is now is currently Cuvier's beaked whale. And for a time, I think sperm whales were possibly outclassed by one of the elephant seals. But um, the current record holder is uh, Cuvier's beaked whale. Oh, well, it, well, I don't know what it is now. I can't. It's like two kilometers or something crazy like that, isn't it? People first discovered this because they found because dead sperm whales were tangled up in submarine cables. So and and there's this whole controversy as to how sperm whales actually hunt at depth. How do they actually find stuff? Mm. Because people have found completely blind sperm whales that seem to be you know, in good condition. So, um, yeah. You can't obviously. see very much down there, can you? Well, what if you can excite bioluminescent plankton? Yeah. That has been proposed. It's also been proposed that they, they use the, the white, their teeth to attract squid. I mean, I don't think there's anything in that, but it's been suggested. So, but how do you actually find stuff when you're down there? Sonar. Obviously, mm. but what you just go down there and you just you just hope you're going to bump into something. Yeah, that's why they've got that great big head. Mm. Mm. <laughs> for bumping into things, you said so yourself. <laughs> right, answered. Um, the answer is no, and no, and a whole bunch of information about sperm whales. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I'm going to do one more cash for question, and I think we should wrap this thing up. Can I say something? You <laughs> must. Okay, this is another bit of like random follow-up. I think it might have been relevant to the last episode. Okay. Now, we've already established that you've got no memory whatsoever, but do you remember when we were talking about a film? I can't remember why we were talking about the film. It's about a f- Ryan Reynolds buried underground oh. in, a ca- in, a, in a case. Do you remember me talking about this, right? Yes. For some reason, <laughs> you were talking about this in connection with what sort of dinosaur film <laughs> I can't remember. A dinosaur buried in a case or something? I don't God, know. God. <laughs> Fossilization, live. I can't remember how we got onto it. But, but <laughs> listening back to that episode, what happens is I say, there's this film where Ryan Reynolds is like buried underground. It's about this guy who's like buried. I can't remember what it's called, but it's about this guy buried in a case underground. <laughs> it's like he's buried, but I can't remember what I it's called. I think it What's was it called? called The Bus That Couldn't Slow Down. <laughs> Do you know what the film's actually called? Buried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's that. <laughs> Just wanted to get that off my chest. Okay, back to cash for questions. So, Christian asks. Yeah. So far, the smallest non-avian dinosaurs discovered are about the size of a thrush. Why haven't any smaller ones been discovered? Did they not exist or are they just not preserved? Well, what do you think, Darren? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, it's, yeah, often comes up. Why don't we get smaller dinosaurs than that? Smaller non-bird dinosaurs. Um, I'm kind of inclined to think that that they didn't get smaller than that. That those were the smallest of the non-bird dinosaurs. Um, 
Uh, why do I think that? Well, because we haven't got any fossils of them yet. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, is there kind of like a reason, a mechanism or something to explain that? I don't think that there is really. I don't see why you couldn't get ones that are like <sighs> substantially smaller. But then this is the thing, isn't it? Because um, it's a key innovation of birds that birds did get crazy tiny. Like early in their history, early in their history, a a 30 centimetre long non-bird dinosaur, we regard that as tiny for a non-bird dinosaur, but that's large compared to the smallest birds. That's still like 30 times bigger than the smallest bird. You know, there are birds that weigh like, I don't know, five grams or something. The average bird is like, is it, th- is it 30 grams? Oh, ridiculous. No. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, okay. Smallest bird, five grams. Have I, is that anywhere close to reality, or have I just gotten the numbers completely that sounds right? sounds right to me. I thought that was right. Yeah, it is right. Okay, it is right. The smallest bird's five to six grams. I became worried then that I was confusing birds with pump, with uh, bumblebees or something. But, um, yeah, yeah, so, you know, there, there, is, there are always constraints on size, both the lower and upper scale. And um, maybe there's a whole load of reasons why birds could get to tiny size, down to, down to this size, five to six grams, whatever, to do with like uh, where they're able to nest or how they're able to control their temperature or are they able to, how they're able to um, acquire enough energy to fuel themselves, you know, because they're, Birds are different from most other dinosaur groups, and obviously the, the flight means they can take advantage of all kinds of uh, often rich sources of food that other dinosaurs can't, including pollen, nectar, and uh, small airborne insects. So maybe those are possible uh, constraints on, on the size of non-bird dinosaurs. Uh, that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of resources that you need to be able to exploit to fuel yourself at that size. And then, uh, but the thing I've also thought may have something in it as well is um, this kind of like idea of niches and yeah. an eco space. Dinosaurs aren't living in an empty world in the Mesozoic. The world is stuffed full of lizards, frogs, mammals, all manner of other things. And um, uh, are there enough of those animals occupying those niches to? Uh, you know, to maybe mean that it's not worth your time in evolutionary terms to uh, to bother with those niches. Or that you simply can't outcompete those smaller animals. You can't outcompete them. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. They're better at it. However, I do have another point. Mm. That, okay, so the smallest adult dinosaur is that size. Oh, yeah. What about independently living juveniles? How big are they? Because they're filling up a bunch of those niches as well. Because, well, I don't know how much we know about, now I think about it, I don't know how much we know about the um, uh, the life history of smaller non-avian dinosaurs. But if they like the big ones, then the, the juveniles were probably living independently quite young. <clears throat> and therefore they are filling those smaller niches. What are the... In some ways, I think we should be looking at raw fossil size, not theoretical adult size, when we talk about what the smallest things are. You know, unless mm. it's unless we think it's actually living in a nest or in an egg, 
then it is a small animal out in the world competing for that small animal niche. It's trying to find food. It's trying to do this stuff. So it might be that this, what we're starting to think about dinosaurs, this way they, the juveniles filled niches, is true of small dinosaurs as well. And therefore, yeah, the adults are bigger, but your average one out in the world is tiny or very small. Yeah, um, given that most of the evidence we have from dinosaurs indicates that they were producing relatively large numbers of babies for their size. Yeah. yeah, Even a small one is a small theropod, so an animal the size of, like, uh, a crow, is it still producing even five to ten babies? So Mm. even five babies. That's not that's not a big clutch. A big clutch is thirty babies. Is it still producing five ish, ten ish? Then, in which case, in which case, maybe, maybe yes, we are blinkered by our lack of good evidence, and uh, we've missed the fact that dinosaurs were contributing to this small size. That is completely plausible. Uh, in which case, in which case, yes, there must have been little theropods and tiny ornithischians too you know, like the size of finches. Um, we haven't well, got them. Cause- yeah, I mean, we're almost certain they do exist, right? Um, the question is whether they're they have living, babies, inde- so- living independently. Yeah, yeah. Or whether they're being fed by the adults. Yeah, we have a complete lack of evidence on any of this stuff. I mean, so far as I know, I, I my impression was that the um, smallest, like, trackways and stuff are about equivalent to like the tiniest bones and tiniest teeth we have, as in like epidect shiptrix and uh, parvi, the tiny parvi cursorines and uh, ashdown manoraptoran style things. So animals, yeah, animals like, you know, less than 30 centimetres long in total. Um, I'm making well, trackways. Yeah, I think, I think that's the smallest, the smallest we've got. But yeah. I'm pretty sure that's right. I'm pretty sure there's like... Th- Footprints that look like they'd be made by like a thrush-sized uh, animal uh, from a few places in the in the Mesozoic. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, there, there was there was uh, for a while there was thought to be a nest of tiny, tiny, tiny baby theropods from uh, well from China. I can't remember if it's from the Yehole, but um, they turn out to be lizards. Because um, it was like a jumble of bones in, I think, some in eggs, and the, the yeah. eggs are tiny. The eggs are like, I don't know, two and a half, three centimeters long. That sort of size turn out to be lizard eggs. But um, yeah, yeah, I certainly don't think that dinosaurs are particularly numerous at that size, based on the evidence we have. You know, is that going to turn out to be completely wrong? Well, <clears throat> you'd think, based on the very good microvertebrate sampling that's now occurred at many. Uh, Places, many places in the world at many different mesozoic strata, um, we do find loads of small dinosaurs, but not smaller than what we've already been talking about. You know, you, you find loads of like evidence for tiny theropods that are sort of like chicken-sized, crow-sized, but not smaller than that. So, um, yeah, which is interesting in itself. Where are all the juveniles? Yeah, unless they are juveniles. Unless they are juveniles, I'm presuming they're not. A lot of them. Hmm. Well, like the ones I can think of, they're uh, you never you never basing it on complete skeletons though. You're, when it gets these kinds of animals, you're always basing it on bits and pieces. Um, I'm thinking of like some of the tiniest theropod bits and pieces I've seen, tiniest non-bird 
they are they seem to be from adults, but they're not whole skeletons. And then the things like the um the scansory pterygids, uh the smallest ones we've got, E key and uh, Epidexipteryx and uh, Scansoriopteryx, Epidendrosaurus, whatever it's called. Um, I don't know that they're fully adult, but I think there's the implication that they're like pretty close to it, that they're either uh, young adults or they're on the cusp of adulthood. Like, I mean, yeah, Epidexipteryx has got these you know, crazy long tail structures. Um uh, I can't remember. If, I can't remember if you can tell from the fossil what the condition of Asgo's like neurocentral sutures, these other bony indications of adulthood. But um, yeah, it's going to be at adulthood, at adulthood or close to it. So they really are tiny adults. Yeah, I guess the mm. thing that seems less interesting about them is they're they're pretty close to birds, aren't they? They are. Um, well, I'm more interested in why you don't get tiny. Ornithischians, for example, or more basal um, theropods. Um, <clears throat> I guess. So, what sort of niches are really tiny animals filling? What are they eating? Insects, a lot of the time. What other sorts of things? Yeah, there's like a lot of fornivory uh, uh, of like arthropods mm-hmm. and uh, little mollusks. Um, there's also like a bit of. Uh, you know, nectarivory and pollen eating and certain lizards and obviously little birds. Um, but no, mostly it's, yeah, mostly it's eating arthropods, isn't it? Yeah, so what's the sort of the smallest generalised herbivory? Because uh, maybe you need a certain size gut to deal with, you know, low-nutrition plant things, like just eating leaves and... Oh, and the yeah, sorts yeah. of things that we think lots of ornithischians, for example, were doing. Well, anything, obviously, as you get closer towards, like, uh, as, as your diet includes more fibre, it only really works energetically when you've got, like, relatively big guts. Mm. Or if you do something particularly unusual, like refection, like rabbits and mm. certain marsupials and rodents do, where you're eating your dung to recycle <laughs> nutrients. But, um, but, like, small herbivorous rodents are not herbivorous, like mice and voles and things. They eat animal material and mm. carry it. And they also eat a lot of fungi. Mm. We haven't mentioned fungi because, of course, that's going to be present in many Mesozoic environments Yeah, um, as much as it is now. Maybe even more so. Maybe in, in a warmer or humid world, maybe there's even more fungi. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know anything about fungi or fossil no. history fungi. But I'm wondering, like, the evolutionary pathway to... So say you're you're an ornithischian and you've evolved from you know a relatively large in general terms um thing into a generalized herbivore of some sort you're eating leaves basically how do you get tiny what do you start eating to get tiny you have to start changing your diet quite drastically yeah don't you? yeah cuz a lot of the things that we think of as like a high energy um, and and small, small for like your bite size for a little animal are seasonal, like buds, shoots, fruits, all those sorts yeah. of things. Are they definitely there all the time? I think, yeah. And you require a certain kind of size of understory as well, a certain kind of height of vegetation, unless you're a climber. But then we've got no indication that any of these animals are really doing much in the way of climbing. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's just, it just occurs to me <clears throat> that it's not just a simple matter of getting small. You have to change a whole bunch of things. It's actually, if you start out in the generalized, as a generalized herbivore, you, it's difficult to get small. You have to change many things, not just yeah. get small. Yeah, I think I think you have to have a lifestyle, uh, a diet, a biology that 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 involves a substantial portion of eating animals, or eating and finding ephemeral sources mm. like fruits and juice and these. The uh, um, the location of which, the like seasonality of which and stuff will be completely different in the Mesozoic compared to. What we're used to, what we're used to. I mean, in, I've read quite a bit about um, the ecology of tropical birds, in particular birds that are reliant on uh, fruiting trees, like hornbills. And um, the only way that, well, the, the way that fruit fruit eating birds can survive is by being very long lived, by having very good memories, and and having access to ephemeral but sort of reliable resources and as soon as that becomes uh you know like people destroying fruiting trees for example completely screws a lot of fruit eating birds in here in the in the the higher latitudes birds that do that rely on like these weird sort of eruptive events where all of a sudden they know that you know, the rowan or whatever is going to come into fruit and you're going to have like hundreds of rowan trees but you have to be able to cover huge distances like hundreds of kilometers to be able to find them which of course you can only do because you can fly in the first place um and yeah see that's that's a limiting thing um i quite like the idea of turning into like a four a, a, a small like humid forest dwelling um animal that can rely on fungi and stuff as well though so i think that's sort of a possible possibility uh, and and maybe ornithischians um are like uh yeah you know you know this data showing that this that hadrosaurs could eat wood the hadrosaurs in some some places were eating lots of wood which is just insane because that means that they're presumably somehow able, you know, we assume they're successfully extracting nutrients from what is essentially just fiber. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what are they doing? Are they, are they able to break that down or, or is it that they are um, relying on, uh, it's been suggested they might be relying on fungi living in the wood, mm. but, but yeah. it seems to be a pretty stupid thing to do unless you're really crazily specialized for it. Um, well, yeah, who really knows, though, huh? We don't know, that's, that's the yeah. thing. Yeah. So the, the the thing is, we can't really answer why we don't have small things, right? There's probably, there is a fossil bias against them, probably, but it's, you'd still expect to find something. Yeah, we need some, we need lots of little dinosaurs stuck in amber. Because <laughs> at the moment, all we've got, yeah. there's, you know, there's a couple of feathers in amber. Yeah. Which uh, I think I don't know what sort of animals they're meant to be from. Whether they're actually specifically from birds or just from generic feather theropods. Um, but Mesozoic amber record. There's a well. How cool would that be? You know, as soon as you get into the Cenozoic, even even in the Eocene, you've got complete lizards in amber. And and obviously, the closer you go to the modern times, you've got like frogs and uh, there's now a salamander from the Caribbean in amber and. Um, Lots of lizards and owls in particular. But, yeah, little tiny dinosaurs in amber. <laughs> we shall see. We yeah. shall see. Keep your eye out. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah. Keep a lookout when you're looking at Amber. Want some tiny dinosaurs? Yeah. To answer these questions once and for all. Yeah. Yeah. Where's my Amber dinosaur? Okay. I think yeah. we we better stop now because we've been going for two two, two hours. Oh God! It really? won't be two hours in the edit, but yeah. In the edit. Okay. So, well, we've got quite a glut of cash for questions really how many did we just get through we got through i think we got through about five and we've got five for next time so okay yeah i think too badly but yeah so apologies to the people who who have asked stuff long ago and we haven't gotten around to it i think there's one that's missing from oh no there it is no okay from alex because he was haranguing me about SVPG. When are you going to do my cash for question? I will do it one day, Alex. I want it now, now. Answer it now. I'll give you a quid. I was like, no, I don't want your money. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. So, so let, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Then, uh, first of all, another reminder: Tetsuzukon, fifteenth uh, of uh, November, London Wetland Centre. We really hope to see you there. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Was that right? 15th? I thought it was the 14th. Yeah, see, I haven't got the web page open. It is <laughs> on the 14th. It's on Saturday, the 14th of November, 2015. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because um, not only have we got like all these talks and stuff and activities, but we can have like a special little Tetsu podcast, like signing or something. Yeah. If people want that sort of thing. <laughs> they won't. Oh, my God. Not more Darren and John talking. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. Are we, are we moving into the advertising products stage? <laughs> okay. Fascinating, fascinating bit that everyone wants to listen to, folks. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, remember there are many others available at tetzoo.com. Uh, 45 episodes so far, some of which are worse than others. If you're interested in the stuff we like to talk about, then do check out our books, which are available from irregularbooks.com. Our most famous and what? Irregularbooks.co. Yeah, (laughs) that as well. Um, More drink. Oh, I forgot to say about the drinking game. There's a drinking game which I've been playing all the time. Um... Uh, if our books, right, our most famous book is called All Yesterdays. It's about science and speculation in paleontology. It's uh, really, you know, loved and everyone, yeah. And uh, one day we'll do another one. Uh, there's, then there's the Cryptozoologicon, which is about uh, cryptozoology and speculation and how far can you go when you're thinking about mystery animals and what they could be. Well, that's what we explore in this book. Uh, it's These books are done with our good friend and colleague, Mehmet Kozman. And uh, Cryptozoological Book 1 is done. And we're working on Cryptozoological Book 2. It's re- nearly, really nearly finished. Yeah. Um, I need your help. <laughs> Go to patreon.com uh, forward slash tetzoo. And you will see all of the amazing stuff I'm done. I've done so far for this giant textbook, and there's stuff there for other projects as well. So thank you to my patrons. I really appreciate your support, and this is really helpful. And uh, I'm really hoping that eventually it works out so well that I can stop all this other stuff that takes up all my bloody time and um, do th- good things. And John's on mm. Patreon as well, right? Mm. Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. Yeah. 
Patreon's been a good thing for me too. It's nice. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yes, I was just... It's nice. It's nice. <laughs> I love Patreon. Yeah. Uh, I also sell t-shirts at the Redbubble shop. I have a Tetsu Redbubble shop. There's hilarious t-shirts involving monitor lizards and uh, sea monsters and birds. Witty slogans, ahoy. Redbubble.com slash people slash Tetsu. There is also a Tetsu Podcasts <laughs> Redbubble shop where you can get our t-shirt and tape ears. Tape ears? Tape ears. There's some ta- Did you... Go to the talk at SVPCA about tapirs. I did not. Because they mentioned, apparently, this new species of tapir. Oh, no way. Tapirus capamani. Oh. And uh, they sort of had it as like a putative fifth species. Uh, but so I, I was like, what? A new tapir species? Never heard about this. So checked it out. Turns out that one of them was uh, actually shot in about 1912 by <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, apparently. Oh. And... Uh, and he had given it to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And do you know what they did? They put it in the collections. And it's stayed there ever since. And it was overlooked until recently. It's a fascinating story. I should blog about it. Um, I tweet at... <coughs> yes, Lord Vader, I've reached the main power generator. Should we be down in a minute? Should we start your landing? Tetsu. There's a, there's a Ted 12D Facebook page. There's also, good God, how much of this is there? There's I also- don't know. It's getting, we're going to have to drop some of this because it's just getting too much, isn't it? There's also a Ted Zucon Facebook page where you should go oh, for updates God. and such. Yes. Uh, on, uh, and, and to, oh, to the people who have bought Ted Zucon tickets and are like, where's my receipt? Where's my ticket? Where's my certificate? I want a, I want a hat that says I bought a Ted Zucon ticket. We don't do that. No. Uh, just have to, don't worry. Your name's down on the list. You are coming in. Yeah. And I said I would give quick shout-outs to people who uh, engaged in conversation on Facebook while we were recording this. Thank you to... Oh, Facebook's just died on me. Thanks, Facebook. Well, bad luck, everyone. Bad luck, everyone. Well, I can see comments from James Albright. Thanks, James. Jay Bizarzu Cooney, if that is your real name. Uh, Yeah. Diprotodon muscles, what? Pierre J. Marco Lev Boscher, uh, Argentinian sauropod. I I didn't think that was very funny. Thanks. Uh, Alex Sredek, Horizon episode, Goethe Keller, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I can't read your message. Don't use, everybody, don't use the nested reply function on Facebook because I can't be the only person this happens to. I see that a new comment has come into a conversation and I can't open it. Can't open it. Happens all the bloody time. Anyway, I'll just stop there. I use the reply function when I don't want it to be part of <laughs> I want to de-emphasize it as part of the general conversation, if it's a bit off topic or something. Well, that works. <laughs> yeah, it is useful. So there you go. <laughs> <clears throat> on that bombshell. Are we done now? Are we done? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter too, oh. the John Conway. <laughs> <laughs> Darren had so much to say about all this stuff. We're going to have to drop some of this stuff, Darren. Well, no, we just condense it. It needs to be. It needs to be uh, streamlined. Yeah. Okay. Let's end it now, then. The end. The end. <laughs>